Welcome to futureofustchinatrade.com. This is Molly Castellazzo. I recently caught up with Alan Tonelson, who is a research fellow at the U.S. Business and Industrial Council Educational Foundation, which is a Washington-based research organization studying U.S. economic, technology, and national security policy issues. Alan's new book, The Race to the Bottom, Why a Global Worker Sur Surplus and Uncontrolled Free Trade Are Sinking American Living Standards, was recently published by Westview Press. His previous positions include fellow at the Economic Strategy Institute and associate editor of Foreign Policy. Alan and I chatted by phone about China's currency policy, which he says keeps the RMB significantly undervalued relative to the dollar and, more importantly, creates tremendous and completely artificial competitive disadvantages for U.S.-made products. Allen acknowledges that China's currency policy makes Chinese goods cheaper for U.S. consumers, but asks, what should we value more, cheap goods or jobs? He articulates what is, in his view, a much better and more durable formula for national prosperity saving, investing, and producing as least, at least as much as you consume. And he explains what he sees as the optimal U.S. policy response to Chinese currency manipulation, and the likelihood that U.S. policy action would trigger retaliation by the Chinese. Now, to our conversation. So let's start off with sort of the, the 101 kind of, of background. Um, if, if you'd give us sort of an overview on the valuation of the RMB, you know, how undervalued do you think it is, and, and what effect that has on the different, what we might call stakeholder groups, you know, on the American economy in general, on American workers, on businesses. Um, I guess let's start with uh, what is a very important uh, proposition that's all too often lost in this debate about currency values. Mm -hmm. And that proposition is that uh, the best measure of the degree of China's undervaluation um, has little to do with the absolute levels um, of the exchange rate between the one and the dollar at any particular time. Um, the degree of undervaluation instead reflects the gap between the one's valuation on uh, the one's valuation on any given day um, as set by the very narrow trading band established by the, by the Chinese government on the one hand, and the value that the yuan would achieve if it were allowed to be freely traded, which means if its value were allowed to be determined by investors' judgments about Chinese economic fundamentals and Chinese financial, and, and Chinese financial fundamentals. And I make this point because there's unfortunately widespread agreement um, uh, there's widespread agreement even among many critics of China's currency policy that since July 2005 
when China relaxed what had been a very strict peg between the one and and U.S. dollar, um, that that the degree of one undervaluation has fallen. Mm-hmm. I.e., the one has moved closer to fair value because, in absolute terms, its value against the U.S. dollar has 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 risen. Um, there's no doubt that the one has risen in value against the U.S. dollar, but that's not to say that it's less undervalued today than it was back in 2005. And the reason is that China's economy and China's national finances have become so much stronger. I see. So we're, we're, we're dealing not with a static target, but with a moving target, that is to say, China's economic fundamentals and investor perceptions of those fundamentals. And so that's why it's clear to the U.S. Business and Industry Council that that despite this movement we've seen in the exchange rate since July 2005, the looks even more undervalued today than it did back then because the Chinese economy and China's national finances are so much stronger. Okay, interesting. Okay. Now, um, the re- uh, and, and this matters very decisively for U.S.-China trade flows um, and for the future of the U.S. economy, uh, largely because China has become such an important trade competitor and trade partner of the, the United States. And, 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 of course, an undervalued one makes Chinese-made goods artificially cheap versus goods made in the U.S. and in various other countries. Um, it, it makes China's goods artificially cheap not only in the, the Chinese market and in the U.S. market. It makes Chinese goods artificially cheap in third-country markets where U.S.-based and Chinese-based manufacturers compete. I see. This, this price advantage that, that is currently enjoyed by, by Chinese-made goods and that has been enjoyed by Chinese-made goods for many years now has nothing to do with free market forces. It has nothing to do with free trade. It is solely a, the product of Chinese government decisions. Right. And clearly, when Chinese goods enjoy a substantial price advantage over their their, their U.S. counterparts, um, they're likely to do much better when it comes you know, to international trade than those U.S. counterparts. That's not to say that price is the only determinant of trade success, but it's obviously a very important determinant. And since the U.S. Business and Industry Council believes that the one is presently undervalued by at least 40 percent, it's, it's, it's easy to understand why China's current manipulation creates tremendous and completely artificial competitive disadvantages for U.S.-made products. So, so two questions following on, on 
on that thought. One is, while it it creates a disadvantage to U.S. to, to business U.S. manufacturers who are trying to compete in the same markets, mm-hmm. does it create a benefit for U.S. Con- American consumers and others because they can buy these goods more cheaply? Well, that cheap goods argument is, of course, often made Mm -hmm. uh, by supporters of the U.S.-China trade status quo. But it's very important to remember that, economically speaking, few human beings, and certainly few Americans, have a single dimension, i.e., few Americans are simply consumers when you're talking about them in economic terms. Most Americans have to work for a living. They have to earn income. There are obviously those lucky few who who, uh, who have inherited wealth, etc. But most Americans have to work for an income. And when that reality is recognized, it becomes clear that uh, that these cheap Chinese goods uh, can exact a very high price. I e they can significantly reduce the employment and therefore the income, the income earning opportunities uh, that, are, that are available to Americans, i.e. Uh, they can significantly reduce not only American employment rates, they can also reduce American wage levels. Okay. So uh, it, it, it really comes down to the question of what should we value more, um, cheap goods or jobs? Right. Should we value more the ability to uh, purchase artificially, artificial, artificially underpriced products, or should we value more the preservation and strengthening of income-earning opportunities? And to me, and I think to most Americans, the answers are obvious. Clearly, the jobs and the income-earning opportunities are a much better foundation for national prosperity, certainly over any length of time. Right. Now, now having said that, um, there, um, it, it's also very important to point out, and I think this, this was prefigured in, in that first question you asked, there is one other set of clear winners uh, from uh, of clear U.S. winners um, resulting from China's currency policies, and those winners, at least for, at least uh, in the in 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 a near term sense, are are U.S. owned companies that produce goods for export in China. Yep, and they benefit significantly from one undervaluation because because it provides them with a substantial subsidy that can lower the prices of the goods they make in China vis-a-vis U.S.-made competition. So China's currency undervaluation represents a, a major subsidy for offshore American-owned production or U.S. multinational company-related production. Um, it's greatly enhanced the price competitiveness of their products, and it's very obvious that this is a subsidy that's quite valuable to them. Uh, the status quo 
in currency benefits them tremendously, and they are fighting very hard to preserve it. Uh-huh. Now, that... that... Now, I... I I would add, by the way, that this that this stance of theirs is extremely short-sighted because, and, and this actually opens up a whole other series of, of issues, but there, there's wide consensus in the economics community that the enormous U.S.-China economic imbalances uh, that are caused in part, in fact in large part, by predatory Chinese economic and trade policies like currency undervaluation, um, bear great responsibility for the economic and financial crisis that engulfed not only the United States but the entire world starting in the summer of 2007 when the U.S. subprime mortgage market began melting down. And clearly this economic and financial crisis has damaged the interests of U.S.-owned multinational corporations also. But they don't seem to, uh, but, but a few of them seem inclined to take that longer view, uh, because the American financial system um, creates such outsized rewards for short-term success and places so little value on longer-term success. Right, right. So that brings to mind a, a question about the the U.S. based multinationals. I spoke a few months ago with Jim Owens, who was uh, a CEO of Caterpillar, and we didn't talk right. at all about the currency issue. But he That's made right. a comment that because Caterpillar does business that it because it sells in China. That business allows it to employ, allows the company to employ U.S. workers here in the United States. Is okay. is there that sort of? I don't know if you call it a trickle down benefit, but is there that benefit that if if the MNCs can can succeed in other places in China and other places that then they can employ more workers here at home? I'm sure there are. I'm, I'm sure there are individual instances um, of that dynamic playing itself out. And Caterpillar, in part, appears to be one of them. And I'll I'll explain why I'm qualifying that uh, shortly. If we look at the trade flows of U.S. multinational companies and we look at the employment performance of U.S. multinational companies, which are both, uh, which are both tracked by the U.S. Commerce Department, um, it is impossible to argue that these companies' foreign operations make a net contribution to U.S. economic growth or to U.S. job levels. And the reason that we know this is that these multinational companies run a large and growing trade deficit, i.e. they import much more uh, than they wind up selling to the rest of the world, and they hire many more workers overseas than they hire in this country. But getting back to that trade balance point, uh, since trade deficits subtract from GDP, and since growing trade deficits 
subtract from economic growth, it's impossible to say that 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 multinational company operations add to either one or strengthen the U.S. economy or 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 enrich it in any way. Now that's multinational companies overall. Caterpillar is very unusual. Uh, it's in, uh, when we're talking about Caterpillar, it's very important to remember that although Caterpillar has indeed maintained a very substantial U.S. US employment footprint, uh, Caterpillar has done so in large part by dramatically reducing its workers' wages. Ah. Uh. Uh, that, that that seems to be, uh, at best, a very pyrrhic victory for the American labor force. Um, it's also important to note that although Caterpillar was always very happy to tout its exports from the U.S., um, it has been unwilling so far to disclose publicly what it imports. So until we get those numbers from Caterpillar, we really won't be able to know how Caterpillar's trading operations affect U.S. economic fortunes. I see. Uh, one, one, one final point about Caterpillar that's rather distinctive. Caterpillar is one of relatively few American companies that make products that are actually consumed in China. Uh, it's one of relatively few American multinational companies, certainly, that make products that are sold and consumed in final form in China, uh, uh, i.e., that, that, that are shipped in final form from the U.S. to China and to many other foreign countries also. Um, a very large percentage of U.S. exports to China, we don't know exactly how many because, unfortunately, the U.S. government is not very good at counting them, consist of industrial inputs of all kinds, parts, components of larger manufactured final products, but also capital equipment, uh, which goes into to building foreign factories. Um, and lots of the, of the final products that are created from those exports come back to this country fueling U.S. trade deficits. How do we know this? Because China's economy has for so long been such an overwhelmingly export-driven economy. Mm -hmm. Exports have been such a large and, in fact, disproportionate, have, have accounted for such an outsized share of China's economic growth. Caterpillar is unusual, though, in the sense that it's very easy to make the argument that even though in a technical sense Caterpillar's products are consumed in China, many of them um, are used to strengthen the Chinese export base. And why is this? Because so many, so many types of, of Caterpillar machines go into building infrastructure systems. And so much of China's infrastructure is, after all, geared toward exporting. Right. The, some of the um, most free market of the economists that I've talked to before, he would say, well, okay, so China manipulates its currency, and that has, has damaging effects on the U.S. economy, but on whole... The U.S. economy is better off because we trade with China. 
And eventually they'll stop. They'll have grown big enough. They'll have developed enough that they'll stop it. So there's not really anything we need to do about it. I have no doubt that the vast majority of the economics community, while probably not happy with China's policy of currency manipulation, would agree with the proposition that the only thing worse then the only thing worse than acquiescing in this practice would be responding to it, especially with trade barriers. So there's no doubt, uh, there's no doubt that that's so. Um, my main reason for, for disagreeing strongly with those views gets back to the point that I made earlier about jobs versus, versus, versus cheap consumer goods. Uh, the idea, um, the idea that the U.S. benefits um, either presently or has benefited in the past or will benefit in the long run um, is based largely on the idea um, that uh, that cheap consumer goods are a tremendous uh, are themselves a tremendous benefit for the American economy and and for many Americans and their families, but also for American businesses. Uh, who, who get various types of supplies and inputs at prices lower than they would ordinarily pay. Um, in my view, the problem with, with such thinking is that it assumes that, that, that prosperity can be maintained primarily by consuming and by net importing, and therefore by, by engaging in the type of borrowing that's required um, to um, uh, that's required to finance those uh, those imports, and um, uh, and certainly common sense tells me that that's a very shaky recipe for national prosperity over any period of time. Mm -hmm. And in fact, the enormous debts that this country has run up largely, not solely, but largely due to its international trade policies and the enormous deficits that they created, uh, which, as I previously argued, bear much responsibility for the economic and financial crisis. Um, I think that, that this record of recent years bears me out. So... Um, that, that is to say, a much better and more, more durable formula for national prosperity is saving, investing, and producing. Uh-huh. So then... And, and, certainly, and certainly producing at least as much as you consume. Okay. So what's the mechanism then by which, in your opinion, it, sort of what's the optimal mechanism by which the U.S. should go about affecting a change in in the relative value of the RMB. I mean is okay. it a is it a, um, a WTO not, issue? Oh uh, well it could be in theory but um, that actually brings us to a big misconception about uh, in fact a fundamental misconception about the World Trade Organization. The idea that it's roughly akin to an American court of law where all parties to a to 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 a dispute um, can can have a reasonable assurance 
Now, I know you addressed this this question in, in your recent articles, but how do you respond to people who say, well, if the, if, if the U.S. imposed tariffs on, on Chinese-made goods, that would spark a trade war, that then China would impose tariffs on U.S.-made goods and, and it would snowball from there. How do you respond to, to folk, people who say that? Uh, in my view, Chinese retaliation uh, would amount to a decision by Chinese leaders to shoot themselves in the, in the head. Okay. Um, and the reason I say this is, is because a China's economy does rely so heavily on 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 net exports to create growth and also and and also jobs. And B, the United States is by far the best end use customer for Chinese products. Mm-hmm. And I think it would amount to uh, to to both economic and possibly political suicide for Chinese leaders to fatally antagonize the best customer for their export-dependent economy. And the politics of this situation uh, are critically important to understand. Um, One main reason that China has clung so tightly to this policy of, of currency manipulation is the the very urgent need for the economy to create jobs and maintain employment by exporting the tremendous and I think quite uh, quite amply justified fear on the part of the Chinese leadership that um, that significantly higher rates of Chinese unemployment uh, the kind of jobs crisis that could well result from a sharp reduction of Chinese exports um, could threaten Chinese political stability and in fact could threaten the Communist Party's hold on power. Mm-hmm. And uh, Chinese history teaches us that there are few things worse in life than being a former Chinese leader. <laughs> and I will continue with this quote, it's bad for your health. <laughs> right. So, staying in power is the number one priority of the Chinese leadership, and that is one reason why, as painful as it will be for that leadership uh, to deal with the, with the kind of export slowdown that, that would certainly result um, from, from U.S. tariffs, it would be even more painful for them to engage in a trade war, which would result in them losing even more of the U.S. market mm-hmm. than, the, uh, than, than that first round of tariffs would actually cost them. So there's no doubt in my mind that in this relationship, the United States holds all the most of the most important cards. It's simply that Washington refuses to recognize this, or at least the critical mass of U.S. leadership so far refuses to recognize this. So, so that's a question for you. What? Why? What? No. So, so what are the prospects? Do you think that policymakers in in D.C. will actually? You know, they've been talking tough about it for a number of years. Right. That they'll actually impose some tariffs, like like you're talking about? 
Right. Well, in the larger sense, the uh, the longer the U.S. economy continues to stagnate at very best, the more pressure voters will put on their leaders to do something about it, and much of this pressure will uh, will will center on countering predatory Chinese trade policies like currency manipulation. Yeah. Um, Having said that, there there is also uh, a, a a very distinct possibility that the United States economy will be able to muddle through just well enough to prevent popular emotions from reaching that from reaching that boiling point. If the economy substantially worsens, uh, the odds of uh, the odds of effective action against Chinese mercantilism, in my view, go uh, in my view in my view go up significantly. Um, there's no doubt that the fate of the the of the current currency bill is very much up in in is very much up in the air right now. Um, it's clear that the House Republican leadership strongly opposes this bill and does not want it brought to uh, and does not want it brought to a vote, precisely because, um, from all that we know about its its current levels of legislative support, it would pass. Um, it currently boasts 230 co-sponsors. It, that number has actually gone up in the last few days, and 63 of them are actually Republicans. So that's a that's a pretty good bipartisan majority. Um, in principle, the rules of the House enable Speaker Boehner uh, to exercise great control. Over that, that over that chamber's agenda. Um, at the same time, um, there is the possibility of a so-called discharge petition, um, which is a legislative device that enables bills to move to the House floor for a vote despite leadership's opposition. Um, such a discharge position requires um, re requires a simple majority of the House. It hasn't moved so far because even because even House Republicans who have co-sponsored the actual currency manipulation bill are very reluctant to sign that discharge position for fear of antagonizing their own party's leadership. However, again, as America's economic problems continue and possibly worsen, the pressure on those legislators will certainly rise. Have have you conducted analysis, or do you know of analysis that exists on, you know, how how many American jobs would be created, or or how much GDP, or how much would be added to GDP if uh, certain tariffs were imposed and American exports were more American made exports were more competitive. Right. The only studies that um, that profess to 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 provide uh, to provide 
highly specific answers to those questions or studies um, that come from the Economic Policy Institute, and you've probably read about them. Yes. Um, they, they provide an answer to a slightly different question. Um, they purport to show uh, to show how job creation in this country would be affected if if the one were traded at fair value. Okay. Uh, that's a slightly you know different. That, that that's of course a slightly a, a slightly different set of, of conditions than the imposition than the imposition than the imposition of U.S. tariffs that are aimed, of course, at equalizing prices of of of, um, of the you know, goods that the two countries trade. Um, I haven't seen any studies um, projecting the uh, projecting the effects on on U.S. employment or growth from imposing those tariffs. Um, but what we do know is that all else equal, any action that reduces the U.S. trade deficit speeds up U.S. growth increases GDP, and therefore, by definition, must increase, must increase U.S. employment. Okay. And in fact, uh, I've written, uh, I've written most recently for, for Bloomberg News that the only way for the U.S. economy to speed up growth in hiring without incurring more debt is to is to dramatically reduce its overall trade deficit and of course the china trade deficit is a huge component of that overall deficit in fact the china deficit currently represents about uh, 40% of the us goods deficit we don't have current figures for the us china trade balance in in services okay right but just but, but 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 simple logic tells you that reducing that China trade deficit would uh, uh, would produce would produce meaningful progress toward reducing the overall trade deficit. So along those lines, you know, President Obama had had said that he wants to double U.S. exports in five years. Right. Do you right. do you see any path? to doubling U.S. exports in five years that doesn't involve tariffs on Chinese-made goods? Well, um, let me first point out that the president's goal uh, reflects a, a really shocking degree of economic illiteracy. And the reason is that increasing exports per se will do absolutely nothing to achieve his goals of boosting GDP growth or employment. Changing trade flows can only improve growth and job creation if the, if the trade balance improves. Uh-huh. Therefore, um, therefore, what has to go up is 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 U.S. net exports, not U.S. gross exports. And I see no prospect of the president um, contributing in any way to a doubling of U.S. net exports over any foreseeable 
uh, over any foreseeable period of time. Okay. Um, even if he wins a second term. Uh, what again? What has to improve? What has to go up? Are net exports, and and given the enormous disparity between American imports and American exports, and also given the fact, or or, or let's say the strong likelihood that the world economy um, will remain very fragile for a long time to come, and that because growth will be subdued foreign markets are not likely to remain even as open to U.S. goods as they are now, um, it's clear that a great deal of the trade deficit reduction will have to come from curbing American imports. By making more here at home. Not it, but okay. lots of it will. And, and that's curbing imports by making more goods for consumption here at home. Well, it, it, well, it would involve replacing much of what we currently buy from overseas with what we would make at home. Okay. And the way that we see it, um, that, that, ki- that kind of import substitution uh, holds the greatest potential to achieve that trade deficit reduction goal that is so essential to, to in turn, generating debt-free growth. Okay. And, and, and in fact, um, just, 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 just to amplify slightly, um, over the last few years, this country has proven to be moderately successful at creating growth and jobs um, while piling on enormous amounts of new debts. Right. Very few Americans are happy with that. Yeah. The challenge we face is to is to grow and create more jobs while reducing those debts. And that is what trade deficit reduction enables a country to do. Okay. Okay. And and, uh, as long as President Obama remains so tightly wed to the trade policy status quo, not only regarding China, but regarding the World Trade Organization, regarding uh, the types of trade agreements that the U.S. signs with various trade competitors um, uh, in terms of, of... future proposals like the Asia-Pacific Partnership, um, as, as long as um, U.S. trade policy strategy remains essentially unchanged, the results, which is to say enormous and growing deficits, will remain unchanged also. So it sounds like it's really going to come down to if, if American voters feel enough pain, are they going to vote in policymakers who will change the trade status quo right I, uh, I, I it, 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 it's a very depressing prospect or a very depressing scenario to consider because everybody wants the economy to do well but it does seem that that a considerable uh, it, it does seem that considerably more pain is going to have to be inflicted 
on the American voter before they generate the kind of pressure on leaders to produce that, that trade policy change.